Hi, y'all. My name is Rich, and I am the uh, pastor of the Inclusive Collective and a member uh, of Urban Village. Been around for a couple of years. And so, uh, yeah, it's great to see everyone here today. And a uh, special th welcome to UIC folks. So all the way from undergrads to grad students, PhD students, med students, uh, it's great that you are here. Uh, as we um, begin this time, will you pray with me? God, I ask you now that um, you help to make the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts and dreams and even daydreams of all of us in this place aligned with who you are and who you are calling us to be. Amen. So my roommates and I, when we're having conversations, we often half-jokingly interject the phrase daddy issues when we have these conversations. So we'll be talking about something, and when we notice that we are experiencing something in a certain way, or having a certain reaction to an experience that uh, is often uh, related to our complicated, though not terrible, relationships with our fathers. So uh, examples include, for me, I almost never play baseball or softball or any form of catch, even in like those rec leagues. Daddy issue is my dad was my Little League baseball coach, and I usually only played right field for one inning. If you know anything about baseball, a ball is never hit to right field. Uh, or when a toolbox is involved, I typically run the other direction. And that's because my dad is like MacGyver. I swear he could build a house out of like paper clips and duct tape. Or another one is I get a message from a cute, interesting guy on Cupid, but there's no way I'm going on a date with him. Daddy issue? He has the same name as my dad. One of the most enduring legacies of these daddy issues, though, is my sort of aversion to taking advice or guidance from others. Uh, and this is deeply rooted uh, from childhood because my dad used to tell me to do things that I thought were ridiculous. That, and objectively, they were ridiculous. So examples, some lighter examples. Uh, one time he made me rake. My, my parents have a, a really large deck in the back, backyard. And he made me rake all the leaves out from underneath the whole deck. He said, do this immediately. Go do it immediately. And so I did it. Um, and then as soon as I finished, took a couple hours, as soon as I finished, he then cranks up the hedge trimmer and trims every hedge around the whole back deck, thus littering everywhere I just raked with leaves. So he asked me to do things that made no sense. Or another one was uh, my parents had this beautiful, huge backyard. And after a particularly rough storm, all these limbs fell. Uh, my dad called them limbs. I called them medium-sized trees. And they fell, and they filled up our yard, and he told me to move all of them from one side of our pasture to the other. I was like 100 yards. So I was out there like dragging all these limbs all through the yard. And then the next day he comes back and says, actually, I changed my mind. I want them all back to the side you just moved them from. And so things like this were not infrequent. Uh, for my dad to order me to do these things. I accept and expect all of your sympathy. So you can talk to me afterwards. <laughs> Don't worry. I talked to my spiritual director through all these things, so I'm in constant conversation about these. Don't worry about my health. Uh, those are some light stories, uh, but the fact is that many of us, if not most of us, don't always trust guidance or instructions from others because the authorities we are supposed to trust haven't always been that great for us. And so society says, go to college, and that's the key to success. And then we graduate, and we can't find a job, and the mountains of debt are huge. 
or um, you know, the, trust the justice system. The justice system is always right and always good, but again and again and again, we find it trapped in systems of inequality and operating with racism. Or the church is supposed to be this good authority, and the church tells us that we're all created in the image of God and we're all worthy to be loved, and then we start to lean into our full identities and we're no longer worthy to be loved. And so these things happen, and these authorities that are supposed to be good wind up not being so great. I'm a millennial. We're known for resisting authority, but it's not just true of this generation. It's true for lots of people in all sorts of generations. So many of us distrust authority, especially when our so-called best institutions and people and places of authority fail us. So many make the leap and say that our, our distrust of authority really just means that we don't want challenge or guidance or instruction. We want to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, without anybody speaking truth into our lives, without anyone giving us guidance. And to be honest, that may be somewhat true for me at times. There are some moments and seasons when that is true. Um, and as I said earlier, I have some deeply rooted uh, resistance to guidance from others, and I think that's true for a lot of us. But for me, I know that some of the deepest moments of growth that I've had some of the best experiences of growth and change and evolution have occurred when there have been people in my life who speak truth openly and honestly to me. When there have been people in my life who rooted in their love for me help provide guidance and instruction and a sense of authority for me. The answer to bad guidance and authority and misused authority, I don't think is to just do away with all of it to dismiss instruction from others all the time. Because growth doesn't usually occur in a vacuum, right? Growth occurs in conversation and relationship with other people, and life isn't meant to be lived alone. So we need people with authority in our lives. Not an authority that's imposed on us, not an authority that someone just decides they're going to have for us, but people whom we give authority because we know that they love us and they see us and they speak words of challenge to us. People who know that we often need grace, but sometimes what we need is a kick in the ass, right? I need those folks. I think we all do. People that know that we need challenge. People like my friend whose kitchen table I sat at a couple years ago in D.C., my best friend from college. And I don't remember at the kitchen table what we were eating and drinking. My guess is Cheez-Its and Coors Light. Go ahead, judge me. We were sitting there at the table, and uh, we were having a conversation, and um, he was one of the few people who knew that I was gay at that point, and I'd come out to him shortly, a few months before, after he had come out to me, and I'd been wrestling and asking questions, like, do I really want to take the plunge and come out more fully, more publicly? Is that something that I'll want to engage in, or do I want to just not do it because it feels so dangerous? And he had held me with so much grace and trust, and it was beautiful. But at this moment, he knew, because he knows me so well and loves me well, he knew that what I needed was some, were some words of challenge. And so he looked at me and said, the reason that you aren't coming out is because you're afraid to be fully exposed. The reason you aren't coming out is because you're scared to be vulnerable. The reason you aren't coming out is because you're afraid to let people see you. And that moment was pivotal. It was one of the key moments in my life where I started to think, maybe I will lean into the person God created me to be. Maybe I will trust God and my community to hold me in this tough time. 
those words led me to freedom, helped lead me to freedom, even though they hurt at first. Or I think about a seminary professor I had named Lloyd Allen. He was a church history and spiritual formation professor. And he was known for tough tests and brilliant and sometimes biting lectures and a spiritual depth that was contagious. One day he was giving a lecture, and he went off on this riff about some of you uh, ace test, some of you write these brilliant papers, some of you um, do so well in school, but I wonder about some of you. I wonder, some of you, I wonder how your, what your prayer life is like. I wonder if you're connecting to God. I wonder if you are, are being transformed by the power of God's love in your life, and you're letting that stir your soul. I wonder if that's true for you. My roommate and I both went to a small liberal arts school called Sanford University, and then he began to, to single us out. Some of y'all went to good liberal arts schools like Sanford, didn't you? Yeah. Some of you um, write these great papers, and some of you are acing my test. You're doing those things. You intellectually get seminary. You intellectually know how to succeed in seminary, but I don't think you're making time to pray. I don't think you're letting God transform your lives. And he looked into our eyes and he said, guys, how's that working for you? How's that working for you, really? How's that working for you? He told us the truth that we can have all the intellectual knowledge and read all the books we want and know so many things about God, but unless it is hitting us at our core, what are we really doing? That comment hit me in a powerful way and led me to believe, helped me remember that faith is not merely an intellectual exercise, but it's, an, it's a transformative encounter with the living God. I think about last year with Lynette, and uh, I um, don't know if she even remembers this conversation. We, uh, Lynette was an intern at the Inclusive Collective and goes to Urban Village in Andersonville, and we uh, were headed back to UIC one evening on the, at the Washington L-stop, and we saw a fight begin to break out between a white man and a black man. And it looked like it could be escalating. And so I called the, got on my phone and called the cops before hopping on the next train. And after I hung up, Lynette asked me why I did that. And um, she said, do you know how that situation will likely be processed by officers? Do you know that, uh, who do you think gets blamed in that situation? Who do you think maybe gets shot? You never know what could happen. I'm asking you to be a little more discerning in situations like this in the future. Those comments reminded me that I'm always blinded by my privilege. They reminded me that my default is to call the so-called authorities, but that often the authorities from the justice system, the justice system, rather, is unjust. She reminded me that my gospel values of anti-racism and building beloved community aren't only, to be meant, are only meant to be lived out in, in protests and in sermons and in that kind of thing, but they're also meant to be lived out in my everyday reality. There are authorities, y'all, whom we can't trust. There are authorities that give us guidance and instruction whom we should say no to because they are abusive. And I don't want to downplay that. I know many of us in this room, if not all of us, at some point in our lives have been harmed by abusive authorities. But I also believe that we desperately need truth-tellers in our lives. We need people who, rooted in love for us, deep love for us, tell us things we need to hear. People who push us to live a life of flourishing and justice. People who long to see us pulsing with joy and energy and love. 
Today's scripture passage um, is from the book of Romans. It's a letter likely written by the Apostle Paul. And he was, uh, Paul, you may know, was a chief persecutor of Christians. And then he had this amazing encounter with Jesus. And he became uh, one of the early church's primary leaders. And so he was a missionary and a church starter, and he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, probably a group of about 200 folks in a city of over 1 million. And he writes this letter, it's known as Paul's masterpiece, and it's beautiful, and it's theolo- it has a lot of theological depth and texture to it. But it's not sort of abstract, removed theology. It's actually enfleshed in a lot of ways because Paul is writing it out of his own deep experience of grace. And so I want to name that sometimes when we get to read Paul, it's easy to be like, wow, Paul is really a jerk. Anyone have that experience? Be honest. Okay, cool. So Paul is really a jerk. We're like, why does he say this about X group of people? Why does he say this about women? And I I often agree with that statement. I read Paul, and I'm just like, what is this guy talking about? Um, He was somewhat progressive first time, but um, he can be a jerk at times. But I think that if we can get past some of his things, name them, There's also a lot of good that we can find in Paul. And this letter to the church in Rome, um, in some ways models for us what it looks like to speak truth and love. What it looks like to be a truth teller, because Paul is invested in these people, and Paul is invested in this church, and so he wants to invite them to issue an invitation to them about what it looks like to lead a life that is full of abundance and joy and verve. So Romans 12 marks this pivot point. Up until uh, Romans 12, Paul has been writing this this lengthy letter mostly about theology. So he's naming theology, he's elaborating on theology, but here he makes the switch from theology to ethics. This is where things get a little more practical, a little more granular about the everyday details of how to live life as a Jesus follower. So, in fact, if we look at the, depending on which translation we use for the passage that Grant read a few moments ago, there are 30 imperatives in this passage. That's a lot. 30 imperatives, and all the verb forms are plural forms, meaning that Paul is inviting everyone in the community to take part in them. It's as if Paul is saying, hey, y'all, this is meant for everyone. And also, please don't try these things alone. Do them in community. The 13 verses have this sort of get your hands dirty or roll up your sleeves approach. Don't they have a feel of that to them? And being a follower of Jesus for Paul is no nominal game. It's, no, it's not just a name. It is a decision to commit your whole life to something, your whole being to something, every act to something. It's not a side hobby, but it's the main thing Paul advises. So Paul begins by challenging the church in Rome to demonstrate authentic, genuine, unhypocritical love. And he fleshes that out, what that looks like. What does that mean in real life? For Paul, this love is less about a feeling and more about doing. And the early church, it was less about a fleeting emotion and more about concrete actions toward one another that demonstrated love. At its best, that's what the early church was about. Not just saying, I love you, but doing something that declares, I really love you. And Paul is advising them to continue to do these things, for some of them to begin to do these things. And Paul gives some some words about the texture of the love he's describing. Let it be zealous, full of energy and life and power. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Serve, 
Be hopeful and expectant of something bigger and greater and larger than yourself. Lean on community and on Christ when times get tough. Be people of prayer and practice hospitality. Literally describing there what, what is like pursuing strangers with kindness. This is the kind of love Paul is describing. And then he moves on to the concept of revenge. And he adamantly opposes, even in a culture of persecution, he's inspired by Jesus to oppose vindictive revenge. So instead of repaying evil with evil, Paul tells us to discover fresh, creative, even subversive ways of meeting evil with good. Subversive ways of dealing with those who wish and who do us actual harm. Paul is not saying, uh, let evil reign, let everyone run over everyone else. He simply knows that repaying evil with evil only perpetuates a cycle where evil will never stop. But can we find creative ways of stopping evil with good? That's what Paul is saying. Surely, these weren't easy words for people who were dealing with real persecution, for people who were dealing with real problems. But Paul tells them that God has a ways, too, of awakening people to their own wickedness and foolishness. In this whole section, Paul does not shy away from speaking the truth. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, hold fast to what is good. That's not like a fluffy uh, kind of pie-in-the-sky statement. That's a bold statement. Hate what is evil and cling to the things that are good, that lead to flourishing. And Paul gives them very practical advice about what that means. Very granular advice about what that means. He sees this as an opportunity to challenge them, to exercise healthy authority, and to invite them into growth. Divorced from its wider context, though, it can be easy to interpret Paul's writing here as a form of moralism. So being a follower of Jesus is about doing these things. It's about sort of working up your own willpower in order to do these things and, and make these lists of what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. But this letter is not meant to be read in isolation because Paul, you see, is crafting an entire argument that goes throughout the book of Romans. So the book of Romans doesn't begin with this passage. The book of Romans begins with chapters 1 through 11, which all describe the fierce and free love of God that is always pursuing us. It describes this love of God that is always after us and most fully revealed in Jesus. And this love is for all people, not because of what we do, but because of who God is. And so then when we get to Romans 12, where we get to the praxis part, it is a practice of faith that is rooted and grounded in the free, unearned love of God. That's what fuels and inspires this life for us. Paul spends 11 of 16 chapters articulating that grace before he makes that pivot to what it means. So we get to our passage today and see Paul isn't saying, all right, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and do these things, do this stuff. That's the gospel. Rather, this is what Paul is saying. Friends, you are loved beyond measure by a God whose love is beyond measure. What are you going to do with it? Friends, uh, we have this great resource of grace. How are you tapping into it? Friends, God has initiated this grand, big, huge, expansive salvation project that is making all things new. How are we leaning into what God has already initiated and what God is already doing? That's what Paul is getting at. To summarize Romans in a verse from 1 John, Paul is saying we love because God first loved us. We love because God first loved us. 
Urban Village started to do a mission statement. We were, we were in the process of it a few years ago, and one of the options, my personal favorite, was Jesus loves us, so we give a damn. Jesus loves us, so we give a damn. That's another way of saying what Paul is doing in Romans. It's my version. Paul offers these challenging words of truth and exercises authority, but he does so rooted and grounded in the truth that God loves us no matter what. Unearned, free. Moralism is not the goal for Paul because Paul knows that moralism doesn't lead to change. Concocting your own salvation plans and making this list of do's and don'ts don't transform us. They just prop up our own egos. They're quick fixes. Paul longs for people to be so transformed by grace that these things that he talks about are a natural outgrowth or an overflow of who we are in Christ. And his words, they're challenging because he knows the power of grace. He knows that grace can lead us to do these things. He knows that grace can lead us to lives of love and justice and hospitality and overcoming evil with good. And Paul knows that those are the very things that lead us to transformed, abundant, flourishing lives.